Now, in our house, we've gone from summer to bug season. Uh, I don't know about you. I mean, we, we got home yesterday, ants in the shower. This morning, I was on my computer, ants on my computer. They're all, we're in the dishwasher. I don't know how they got in there. And uh, a lot of bugs don't know this, but they have an enemy. And the enemy is bigger and smarter and stronger than they are. And the enemy has figured out a way to lure these little bugs to their death. One of the things that we went out and bought are these things called kill ants, ant killing bait. And there's these little things. We have them in our bathroom, in our garage. We have them now in our kitchen. We have them all over the place. And what happens is these ants go in. They get the food that they think. They take it back to the queen ant or whoever it is. And, and hopefully, you know, uh, they don't realize they're, they're going to their death. They voluntarily do that. Now, this was one of my favorite commercials when I was a kid. Cockroach Motel, or Roach Motel. And do you remember what the motto was? Roaches check in, but they don't check out. You know? And one of the great things about this thing is when they go in, uh, they actually die inside. They can't get out, and so you have all the dead bugs are all gathered right there. And so, uh, you know, that, talk about the Last Supper. I mean, that's, that's the last one they're ever going to have. Now, I was wondering about this. Why do they do that? You know, the... They don't just, you know, we don't say choose death and they choose death. No, it has to involve some type of deception. It has to involve the promise of something good. And a bug looks at those things and that food is so desirable to their eye, but it leads to their death. Now, I don't know if anybody knows what this is called. I call it a bug zapper. Now, when I was a kid, we used to go play miniature golf and the miniature golf course had this, it was like a... A, the, the grill of, a, a, of a, a radiator in a car, you know. And what would happen is it was electric and it had these lights. going. And whenever a mosquito or a bug would fly into it, zap! You'd just hear the zap, zap, zap going on, and they would just fall right to their death because the light was just so attractive and it, it drew those, those uh, bugs into it. And, um, and so I don't, I, I'm sure there's a technical word for that. I called it a bug zapper. And uh, that's a very cool light. I think I'm going to just go and get closer. Zap. You know. Uh, wouldn't you like to get inside the head of a bug just for a moment and figure out why bugs don't wise up? You know. You'd think that they'd observe that tray underneath the zapper and they'd see all their buddies there who have been impulsive and gone right for the light. And you'd think that a thoughtful bug would say to himself, whoa, wait a minute, I'm not going to just blindly follow my desires. I notice that my friends get drawn into this, but they never come back. And so I'm going to consider just how high a price am I willing to pay just for the experience of getting a little closer look at that beautiful, bright light. But no bug ever does this. Apparently, they say to themselves, I know what I'm doing. I'm strong enough and I'm smart enough and I'm clever enough to handle this attraction without getting burnt. I'm not going to give it any more reflection because I'm a buzzy guy. There is a way that seems right to a bug. But in the end, therefore, is death. And only a bug could be this stupid, right? Only a bug. A former president of the United States, zap. The chairman of the congressional committee that investigated him, zap. Zapping is a bipartisan activity. (laughs) 
fabulously wealthy athletes, successful pastors, high-profile basketball coaches, junk bond kings, hotel magnets, televangelists, zap, 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 zap. I'll show you another instrument of death. It's an apple. We don't know from the book of Genesis exactly what kind of fruit was on that tree. Peter thinks it was a pomegranate, but, but we're told that the tree grew a fruit and it was forbidden. And Genesis 3.6 says, When the woman saw the fruit of the tree, that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for wisdom, zap! And you've got to wonder, every time you read about another person who falls into temptation, destroys their life, destroys their marriage, rocks their world, breaks up a family, withers a soul, you just got to wonder, why does it happen? Why do we choose to violate our values, the very things that we hold up in our lives and that sustain our souls? Why do we voluntarily somehow give into what we know is going to be destructive? Why do we fly right for the light? Why do we intelligent people engage in stupid, dark actions that we know we're going to be ashamed of? Well, the Bible says, at least in part, that the, that the answer is that you have an enemy and so do I. And he's bigger and he's stronger and he's smarter than we are. And so the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians that we battle not against flesh and blood. In other words, today you're engaged in a battle, but it's not against flesh and blood. He says it's against powers and principalities. He says it's against spiritual forces of evil, and therefore put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The fundamental identity of the evil one is tempter. His weapon is simply temptation. And this is why Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Because temptation is what the evil one does. So what I want to do is read one of the most classic passages of temptation in Scripture. It's in 1 Corinthians 10, 6-13. I put it there in your study notes. Or if you have a pew Bible and you want to turn to it, it's 1 Corinthians 10, 6-13. And this is kind of a way of understanding and developing, I think, what Jesus is trying to teach us in the Lord's Prayer. Paul's writing about the temptations that the Israelites who have just finished coming through the Exodus and, and, how, and, and how these temptations in a sense destroyed them. Do you know that that generation never made it into the promised land? Here's what the scripture says. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down and they eat to eat and drink, and they got up to indulge in revelry. Revelry would be partying or carousing. We should not commit sexual immorality. One translation says be sexually promiscuous as some of them were. By the way, the, the, the message puts it this way. We shouldn't turn our religion into a circus. <laughs> And then he said, we shouldn't commit uh, sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, or we should never try to get Christ to serve us instead of us serving him. As some of them did, and they were killed by snakes. And do not grumble. What translation says, don't stir up discontent, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as an example and were written down as warnings for us 
on whom the culmination of the ages has come. In other words, they were at the beginning and we're at the end, so don't make the same mistakes that they made. So if you think you're standing firm, verse 12, be careful that you don't fall. I love the way the message puts it. Don't be naive or self-confident. No temptation has overtaken you or come your way, except what is common to mankind. Other people have faced this. Oh, I'm facing a temptation that no one else has ever had to face. No, no, you're not. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. Now, I think this final verse, 13, is probably one of the central statements in Scripture about temptation. And I just want to walk through, make a few observations about the flow of this verse here. And the first one is this. It's in the first sentence. No temptation has overtaken you or seized you except what is common among people. So when you get tempted, you shouldn't be surprised. Okay? You shouldn't get caught off guard. I'll tell you right now, it's coming. The prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, deliver us from temptation. It doesn't mean deliver us from the experience of temptation. Because there's no human being on the face of the earth that will be delivered from that. Jesus himself was tempted. I'll talk with some people sometimes and they'll act so surprised that they got tempted. I mean, join the human race. We're to pray for deliverance from succumbing to temptation and giving into it and being destroyed by temptation. Nobody is temptation free. And this means that your ability to, re to, to resist temptation is enormously important. To identify what your temptation is and then to resist is huge. I think the marshmallow video was kind of an example of resisting temptation. And so here's my question for us this morning. Not just a children's sermon. What's your marshmallow? Now for me, it used to be Krispy Kremes. Maybe for you, it's the letters S-A-L-E. Maybe it's an adult site on the internet. Maybe it's in a bottle. Maybe it's in the joy of passing judgment on other marshmallow eaters. Where are you most vulnerable to temptation? I want to explain something about this word temptation that Jesus uses. And Paul uses it here in 1 Corinthians as well. Because we tend to restrict temptation to a certain area. For example, and men, be really honest with me on this because I'll be honest with you. When you consider the topic of temptation, honestly, how many of you would say that sex is one of the first words you think of? <laughs> okay. I mean... Not that you wrestle with it, but somebody else in your small group. Or we tend to think automatically in terms of certain categories of temptation. The word that's translated temptation is also translated testing in the scripture. And the paradigm for temptation, biblical scholars would say, is a story in the Garden of Eden between the serpent and the fruit. Seduced to do evil. But the paradigm for testing in the Bible would be the story of Abraham, where he's asked, are you willing to sacrifice your son Isaac? Tested to righteousness. 
And there are times of testing. And the core idea of what we're trying to get across this morning is that when you allow yourself to be torn away from God, then that you succumb to temptation. In the Bible, temptation is never trivial. In our day, we tend to trivialize it. People, you know, use it to talk about certain foods or, you know, I don't know if you heard that story about the lady who was really struggling with buying too many dresses and so her husband developed a relationship accountability and they agreed that whenever she went to the store, you know, whenever she was tempted to buy a dress uh, that she wouldn't buy it and she would say, Satan, get behind me and she comes home with this brand new dress. And the husband said, I thought we had an agreement. You you were going to say, Satan, get behind me. She said, he did. And he said, it looks pretty good from back here, too. So so we tend to think about, you know, these kinds of temptations. But in the Bible, it's not about fattening desserts or petty indulgences. What's at stake is the human soul. And giving in temptation is allowing yourself to be torn away from the God who loves you. And the tempter isn't stupid. He's not going to say to you, choose death. He's not going to try to tempt you to do something that's obviously destructive or is, you know, disgusting to you. The most dangerous temptation that you face is probably the least dramatic. If you look back at 1 Corinthians 10, you'll notice that Paul begins giving four temptations. He says the first temptation is of worshiping an idol. And then he talks in verse 7 about the temptation of sexual immorality. And then in verse 8, the temptation of testing God. And that has to do with shaking our fist in God's face and saying, give me what I demand or I will renounce you. Now, my guess is that if I ask for a show of hands, there's nobody today who's worshipped an idol, nobody who's committed adultery this morning, and nobody who has renounced God. But then there's one more temptation in verse 9. Do not grumble. Any of you grumble today? This was the most unbelievable experience I had. True story. I'm at a meeting in Philadelphia earlier this week. I'm walking along with a friend. And we're on our way to this meeting. I said, I just can't believe these guys. Why do they have a stay in this hotel? Why why did they have to have it in Philadelphia? (laughs) And I'm I'm going on and on. And just as I put my my foot up to take a step into the room where we were going for the meeting, I looked at him and I said, you're not going to believe this. I said, I'm preaching on not grumbling this Sunday. <laughs> and I fell right into it. You know. You see, the purpose of the evil one is to tempt you to be separated from God. And whatever is most likely to do the trick, that's what he's going to use. And grumbling can be just as effective as idolatry or adultery. In fact, sometimes it can be more dangerous because it's more subtle. The evil one doesn't just tempt you to do what's wrong. He tempts you not to do what's right. He doesn't want you to go deep with God. And I love the song that we sang, Oceans, today. Take me on the water. I want to go deeper. To do the things that God created you to do with your life. And I think one of the biggest temptations, and this is embarrassing for me to say, is uh, I'm, I'm coming home with my wife last night from a dinner. And knowing I was going to preach on Temptation, and later on I'm going to talk about having relationships and accountability. I figured my wife should be one of my accountability partners, so I said, what do you think is my biggest temptation? And I imagine all your wheels are turning right now. (laughs) And she said, busyness. And you know what? 
That's what temptation does. It wants to take you away from God. It keeps me from a deeper prayer life. It keeps me from a deeper love for God. It keeps me from deepening my trust faith. Just busyness. And I didn't even know that was a temptation. Maybe for you it's something like a lazy boy in the TV set. Maybe it doesn't, you know, the evil one doesn't have the power to destroy you. He can't kill you. He can't wrestle you away from God. So he's not the counterpart to God in terms of power. But essentially what he's trying to do is to tempt you in a way that will destroy your soul through the temptation. And the temptation battle may be the most important battle you ever fight. And some of you are in one right now up to your neck. And it's not a pretty thing. And the truth is, any time a human being, which by the way is the most valuable thing to God, any time a human being is destroyed spiritually, it always happens through temptation. Through giving in to temptation. So, you should expect it. You are not the exception to the rule. There is no temptation but that which is common to human beings. And then the second observation is found in verse 13. Second part, he says, And God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Now, this statement is sometimes misused by Christmas Christians to talk about suffering. And if you've ever used it this way, I hope you'll stop, and I hope you've never been the recipient of this. But sometimes somebody's in real pain, and somebody will say, Well, God won't let you suffer beyond what you can bear. The Bible doesn't say that. People suffer to the point of death every day all around the world. This verse is about temptation, and God knows just how much you can bear. I used to work out with a a co-worker in the first church that I was ever on staff of. I was associate pastor there, and John and I, uh, he was a big weightlifter, and so he got me lifting weights, and and, uh, we'd go over to his basement three times a week, and he had every free weight you could think of. And sometimes we'd be lifting weights, and every muscle in my body is screaming, stop, put it down. And he's right there, and he's saying, you can do two more reps. You've got two more in you. you know. And in my mind, I am thinking bad words, but, uh, but, but I would do it. And you know what? He was right. And this is an amazing thing about me. I, I don't know how he knew it, but he knew just how much I could bear. And, and it wasn't much, but he knew. And God knows how much temptation you can bear. And he will not allow the evil one to go beyond that point. Now that ought to be very encouraging to everybody in this room. But there's also a sobering implication to that. You and I can never rationalize giving in to sin by saying, I couldn't help myself. I just couldn't resist any further. God doesn't leave that excuse open to us. He didn't intend to. In fact, in James 4, 7, it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. He will flee, but it takes some resistance. You have a very good trainer, and he's with you, and he knows how much you can bear. But that means that there's no excuses on this temptation deal. And if you've been letting yourself off the hook by just excusing yourself by saying things like, well, my circumstances were so bad, or I'm so weak, I didn't have an alternative, that is not the teaching of Scripture. And so it's time to face the painful reality The third observation, Paul says, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out. Now, that's good news. When you're tempted, God himself will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it 
so that you don't cave in to it. God will make a way. So what's the part, my part in being delivered from temptation? Well, here's the first thing. Perhaps the single greatest emotional resource against temptation is joy. Now, this is interesting. It's hit me in, in reading that I did earlier this summer, but it's hit me because on Tuesday morning, we're studying the book of Nehemiah and looking at the leadership characteristics of Nehemiah, and I've been reading each uh, almost every day through several chapters just so that I got the whole feel for, for what I'm trying to teach. We're only at chapter 2 right now in the men's study. But, but do you know that Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10 says this, and I think you all know it. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Now think about that. what that means, that the joy of the Lord is my strength. You see, the first way out, if you want to resist temptation, is to arrange your life around joy. Arrange your experience around the joy of the Lord. Conversely, I think what happens is that joylessness always sets us up for vulnerability to sin and for disobedience. Dallas Willard puts it like this. Failure to attain a deeply satisfying life always has the effect of making sinful actions seem good. I uh, journal and... In my journal, I had written another quote by Dallas Willard, and it says this, It is the responsibility of every Christ follower to carve out a satisfying life under the loving rule of God so that sin won't look so good. And here's further recordings on that in my journal. It is my responsibility to lean into the grace of God, into the wonder and the lavishness with which God wants to pour his love and grace into my life, I need to arrange and rearrange my life until the joy level is so high that I live naturally with the propensity to overflow. And friends, I have seen so many people over the years, people who are leaders in church, bail out on God and fly into some stupid life because month after month and year after year, their life was filled with a kind of a one duty after the other. And all the joy just got choked out of it. And they couldn't trust God and that he would really care for them. And they led miserable lives all along the way. And so the fall was inevitable. And I think our success in overcoming temptation will be easier if basically we have more joy in our lives. For example, when people experience sexual temptation, what do you think is driving it? What's prompting that? Often... It's something that's underneath it. It's loneliness or boredom or self-pity or resentment or maybe that is, is geared towards a spouse. Maybe if that's going on, then as long as I'm focused only on the sexual issues, trying hard not to resist that temptation, as long as I'm focused on the surface, I'm not getting at the root. The root is that there's a deep pain in my life and I'm not acknowledging it and bringing it into the light. To the extent that you have authentic joy in your life, then temptation, which is always the offer of illusion. If you ever saw the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Edmund gets tempted by the witch, it's with Turkish Delight. Turkish Delight is a candy that you'll find over in Great Britain. And uh, I've been tempted by that myself. But, <laughs> but, the, but, but, the, but the, wicked, the witch, she, she, she gives him this Turkish Delight. And here's a great line from the book. Edmund had an ever-increasing desire 
for an ever-decreasing pleasure. And that's what temptation does. It feels so good, but then it turns around and it feels so bad. We have the illusion of joy, but never joy itself, to the extent that if you have an authentic joy, then the deceptive illusion of joy won't be as tempting to you. The joy of the Lord when it comes to temptation, friends, really is strength. And so a question I just want to ask you this morning is, what do you need to do to increase your joy factor? What do you need to do? What are the activities and the relationships that are God-honoring and will bring authentic joy to your life? Maybe it's being out in nature. Maybe it's a certain kind of music that you just love to listen to. Maybe it's being with certain friends and spending more time with them. Maybe it's the physical challenges that some of you I know like, that you know, marathons and biking or whatever. Maybe as you pray, God, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Maybe this is what needs to be a part of that prayer too. God, help me to be a joyful person. Help me to find those things that will fulfill me with joy. But you're responsible to arrange your life so that the joy of the Lord can be your strength. And you have to do that. Nobody else is going to do it for you. And if you don't do it, I can tell you this, you're going to be a sitting duck. You're a target for the evil one. Okay, so that's one way out real quick. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The second way out is to develop relationships of accountability. You know, when you see... uh, Uh, people who are really in temptation, sometimes it becomes hidden and there's a lot of darkness. And I guess I just want to say as frankly as I know how, if you think that you can handle sin and temptation on your own, then you are sadly deceived because you've got an enemy and he is stronger and smarter than you. And if you try to handle temptation on your own, I think you'll fall. You need to have somebody that you can go to and say, I want you to know what my marshmallow is. And I want you to ask me, how's it going with my marshmallow on a regular basis? And I want you to feel free to confront me. And I want you to, when you're concerned about my behavior, I I want to give you an open door to speak into my life. When you're tempted, severely tempted, you need someone to call. You know, in all 12-step programs, you have what's called a sponsor. A sponsor is available to you any time of the day. Everybody needs one. You need somebody to call and say, I want this marshmallow right, really bad right now. You need someone who will say, don't go for the marshmallow. I'll, it'll kill you. I'll come and be with you. I will pray with you. I will talk with you. I'll do whatever you need me to do, but don't go for it. Now, friends, I think this is one of the fundamental differences between what I would call genuine community and pseudo-community or a false community. And I think a lot of churches fall into this, and, and I know it's a temptation for us to fall into this. You can have an inauthentic community that has worship services and a lot of programs, but that pseudo-community because everybody pretends that they don't have a marshmallow problem. In authentic community, community, people know that I'm just one marshmallow away from being a mess. And there's this little monster inside of all this that just craves the marshmallow. The person next to you has a marshmallow problem, by the way. And I'll tell you what, they're sitting next to somebody who has a marshmallow problem too. And in churches where people pretend like they don't have a problem, it's just death. 
but in churches where grace and truth break through and people can be part of little communities and small group ministries where we recognize that we're all creatures who are much smaller and slower than the enemy and that we'll need help from God and help from each other, then that's the power of community. Does, any, does everybody know what your marshmallow is? And have you shared that with at least one other person? And if you haven't, I hope you'll come up with a name right now, and I hope you'll start praying today. Say, God, I need somebody like that in my life. Help me to think about whom that might be. Help me understand what the next step is that I need to take in order to deepen a relationship with a person until I know them well enough and I can trust them deeply enough so that I can share my marshmallow with them. And if you do have somebody like that in your life, I hope maybe you'll even contact them this week and say, hey, I want to let you know how it's going with my marshmallow. That's a fundamental way out. Arrange your life for joy and have an accountable relationship. And then finally, immerse your mind in your life and your heart in Scripture. I am so desirous that we as a body here at Water's Edge will have minds and hearts and lives that are just so washed in, in, in Scripture. Not so that we have Bible trivia, but so that we can think and feel and understand and have the desire to be transformed into the image of Christ. You see, the best way not to eat marshmallows is not by trying hard not to eat marshmallows. The best way is by making sure that we're eating better stuff than marshmallows on a regular basis. You know, you've got to eat better stuff because you're going to eat. And if you don't eat the good stuff, you're going to eat the bad stuff. You know, think about the master of temptation management, Jesus. You know this classic scene when he's just beginning at the start of his ministry. Three times he's tempted. You know, turn bread into stone. Jump down from the temple. You don't have to suffer. You can do something spectacular. Bow down and worship me. I'll give you all the kingdoms. Your mission can be completed right now. And three times Jesus answers, it is written, it is written, it is written. He said, why should I choose that? Well, you need to be real clear about what your marshmallow is. And where are you most susceptible to temptation? If you were Satan, how would you wipe you out? And then immerse yourself in relevant scriptures. And I put several there. I don't have time to develop that, that point right now. And I know that every one of us wrestles with this business of temptation. Maybe some of you are wrestling with it big time right now. And I just want you to remember something. I want you to remember this little zapper here. I want you to remember the next time that you face temptation. It might be five minutes after you walk out of this building. I want you to remember that the damage it can do to your soul can destroy a marriage. It will violate your integrity. It could create guilt and despair. It could interrupt the possibility of worship for you. It could cause you to hide from other people. It could cause you to be a hypocrite and, and be deceptive. It's all bad. And some of you may be flying right toward the light right now. Zap. God will not let you be tempted beyond what you're able. He will make a way out. And maybe even in battling temptation for a long time, you might be discouraged. But the truth of the, of the matter is, even though the battle is not going well, you may say, is there enough grace for me? Is there any hope for me? Will things get any better for me? Well, there is a battle going on, and there really is an enemy, but God will really help you. And so I'm going to ask Mark 
and the team to come back up and sing a prayer to close our service today. Your soul is so precious to God, and I don't care how hard the struggle is. I don't care how many times you've fallen in the past. You can get back up again. God will help you, and it's worth the struggle. We have an enemy. He's strong, but there's one who's stronger still. And he's, he has won the battle. So whatever your struggle is, whatever you're tempted right now, don't face it alone. Make this song your song. And I think this is a prayer for any child of God to pray for the protection of our soul, for the destruction of, of what temptation could do. And just as a reminder that Jesus is the king of heaven and he has won the battle. Let's stand together.